We're in Genesis chapter 7. We're actually going to do Genesis 7 and 8 this morning. And we are looking at entering the ark, the biblical flood, Genesis 7 and 8. We'll pick it up at Genesis 7 verse 1. Uh, in our world, you guys know that you got to buy insurance for just about everything these days. You got home, you got auto, you got life. You got uh, different things. Uh, Southern California, you need earthquake insurance. In certain regions, you need flood insurance. And my question out of the gate is, do you have flood insurance? I'm not talking about the regular flood insurance. I'm talking about flood insurance in the sense of your soul. It's amazing that we will insure everything from a car to a home, but Jesus said, you will forfeit your own soul. What would it profit a man if he gains how much? The whole world and forfeits his soul. What are you going to give in exchange for your soul? What's the value of your soul? If I asked you, if I could have your eyes for $10 million, would you give me your eyes? No, because your eyes are precious to you. That's how you see the world. And so in the same way, your soul is even more precious. Would you be willing to give your soul for a, a little bit of pleasure in the world? What's it worth to you? That's the question that's here before us. Let's pray. Father, as we talk about entering the ark, we want to bow before your majesty. We know that your word is breathed out by you and it is profitable, but it is profitable for those who are good ground. The word is like seed and it produces in good soil. Make us good soil, Lord. Sweep out the things that easily uh, distract us and harden our hearts to your word. Help us to have faith. Help us to be men and women like Noah who are willing to enter the ark and deal with all that goes with it. As we talk about salvation in the ark, we're also gonna get some principles on how to go through storms as believers, how to deal with floods in our lives. And I thank you that you are faithful to see us all the way to that destination, all the way home. So Lord, may you add and take away from what I've prepared. May you give us ears to hear what your spirit would say to your church. We pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. So last time we were together, we looked at the idea of Noah building the ark. And we looked at the Hebrew word for ark. It's teva in the Hebrew picture language. And it means the house of the sign. And the ark became the house of the cross. It became a picture of salvation from judgment. And so Noah was given this work of faith. He was called to build the ark, and scholars believe that he built it over a period of 120 years. And he, he hammered away at the ark, and he preached to the people. He was a preacher, 2 Peter 2, 5, of righteousness. And he preached, and he preached, and he hammered away. And only eight people got onto that ark. Of all the people that lived in the world, only eight took the way of escape, Noah and his family. Now it was time to enter the ark, and now it was time for the flood to come. It says in Genesis 7, look at verse 1, then the Lord said to Noah, enter the ark, you and all your household, for you alone I have seen to be righteous before me in this time. Last week when we were together, I told you this is your time. It is your time to maximize for God's purposes. And Noah alone was found to be righteous in his time. And he impacted his family. You remember the Philippian jailer? 
Uh, Paul and Silas are in prison, and they are singing songs at midnight, though they are, uh, they are strapped in and they have been beaten. And the prisoners were listening, and an earthquake came and shook everything. And the Philippian jailer bowed down trembling and said, what must I do to be saved? Acts 16, 31. Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. Remember how it goes? You and your household. The Bible does not uh, guarantee household salvation. Salvation is an individual thing. But when a mom or a dad gets saved, inevitably the children tend to follow. And Noah's three sons followed them onto the ark. When I was on the mission field, I was preaching literally hut to hut in the back rice fields in Nepal. And our guides and our interpreters would say that the way that you could win a village is by winning the men of the village. The, the women and the children tended to follow the lead of the men. And so I remember literally going hut to hut. And I stopped at this place and this family opened up their hut to me and all the village people gathered. And through a translator, I shared the gospel of Jesus Christ. I remember two young people get, got saved, at least two and they wanted to take a picture with me. And so I was there, we're in these rice fields, they're about to take a picture, and all of a sudden the teenage girl had disappeared, and I said to the translator, where did she go? And he said, oh, she went to put on a new dress. And I said, women are the same everywhere in all the world. And she came out with this beautiful dress out of this hut. It was amazing. And the village listened to the hope of Jesus, and here's what's amazing. They told me through the translator, that was the first time they had ever heard of Jesus Christ. Now that will floor you. We take it so for granted that the ark is available to everyone in every place, but Noah had a work to do, and he built the ark by faith, and by his act of faith, he condemned the world. He was a righteous man. He alone was righteous, and if you're gonna be righteous, you're gonna be swimming against the tide. You all know that. It's easy to go with the flow of the world, and now God says it's time to enter. It's time to come into the ark, as the New King James puts it. Come into the ark. Coming into the ark is a picture of salvation. Have you done that? Jesus says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Noah's name means rest. The ark is a picture of rest, but not from everything. Rest in Jesus, but he still had to ride out the storm. When you come to Jesus Christ, you come just as you are, but it doesn't mean that you're not gonna have floods in your life. It doesn't mean you're not gonna have bumpy times. Doesn't it seem like in life, glassy, uh, tranquil times are the exception? <laughs> we seem almost to move from one storm to the other just when things appear to be calm. And it's time to come into the ark. It's time to come to Jesus. The spirit and the bride say, come, he who is thirsty, come, take of the waters of life without cost. Jesus says, come to me, and I'll give you life. And the Lord said, enter, come into the ark, you and all your household, for you alone I've seen to be righteous before me in this time. I have seen you. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord, Genesis 6, 8, God sees. For the eyes of the Lord, 2 Chronicles 69, move to and fro throughout the earth that he may strongly support those whose hearts are completely his. Psalm 34, 15 says, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears are open to their cry. One brother came up to me and said, Pastor Michael, when you were talking about the eyes of the Lord, you should have added that he can't take his eyes off of us because he loves us so much. 
That's really a great thought. The question is, do we believe that? Do we believe that that's how much God loves us? Proverbs 5, 20 through 23 says, for why should you, my son, be exhilarated with an adulteress? This is how Noah's world was. They were twisted in their thinking, twisted in their behavior. Every thought and intent of their heart was only evil continually. The earth was violent. And the writer of Proverbs says, why should you be exhilarated with her, my son, and embrace the bosom of a foreigner? For the ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he watches all his paths. His own iniquities will capture the wicked, and he will be held with the cords of his sin. He will die for lack of instruction, and in the greatness of his folly, he will go astray. And in that world, so many people, tangled by the cords of sin, did not believe Noah, and they, they waited and they went about their business as usual. They were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were given in marriage, they were buying and selling and planting until the day that Noah entered the ark. They just would not believe him. And Jesus says the flood came and took them all away. Jesus believed in a biblical flood. Jesus believed in a historical Noah. Jesus believed that the ark of Noah was historic. Do you? There's so many so-called experts who comment on the story of Genesis 6 through 8, but I'll tell you this, Jesus believed it, and he, if he believes it, so do I. The eyes of the Lord, Proverbs 15:3, are in every place watching the evil and the good. A soothing tongue is a tree of life, but perversion in it crushes the spirit, Proverbs 15, 3 and 4. The idea there is God knows what we do. He knows what we're up to. He knows what we say. He knows when we make that biting and cutting comment. And isn't it amazing? He still loves us. If you're on the ark, you're sealed in Jesus Christ. You shall take with you every clean animal by sevens, this is verse two, chapter seven, of every clean animal by sevens. Now, we've all had the image of Noah's ark that they came in pairs, two by two, but actually the clean animals came in sevens, three pairs plus one. You ask, well, what's that about? Some would say that was for food and sacrifice, but I'm not sure the clean animals were being eaten at this time. So the main reason is for food. Others say the clean animals were given in triple pairs to proliferate the clean animals and kind of get their kinds going and the variations within species going. And so they came by sevens, probably three pairs, male and female, and then one extra for sacrifice. Genesis 8.20 tells us that when Noah, take a look at it, when Noah built an altar to the Lord, he gets off the ark, Genesis 8.20, he took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar, right? As he gets off the ark, he starts making sacrificial offerings, hence the need for clean animals. And so they came in sevens. And the unclean animals came in twos. Notice, and of the animals that are not clean, verse two, chapter seven, uh, two, a male and his female. And also of the birds of the sky by sevens, male and female, to keep offspring alive on the face of the earth. And so the animals come in sevens and they walk up in pairs and with the one extra for sacrificial purposes. For after seven days, verse four, Seven more days, I will send rain on the earth 40 days and 40 nights, and I will blot out from the face of the land 
every living thing that I have made. At the end of the culmination of the story of Noah's work of faith, God says there's a week left. There's seven days left. Some people take the seven days and compare that to the seven last years, the time that's uh, been called Daniel's 70th week, the last seven years before the return of Jesus Christ. And the last seven years may represent a final warning to the people of the world. You've got seven more days. When the prophet goes around Nineveh and he says, 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. You see 40s and seven. Seven is the number of completion or perfection. 40 is the number for purging and preparation and even purification. And so seven days, the clock is ticking. I mean, this has been going on for a long time. And God now says there's a week left. Some believe the seven days incorporates the death of Methuselah. Methuselah's name means his death will bring it or bring the flood. And some believe he died. And then they took seven days to mourn him. But after seven more days, I will send rain on the earth, 40 days and 40 nights, and I will blot out from the face of the land Notice, every living thing that I have made. God is always true to his word. He is always faithful to do what he said. And Noah did according to all that the Lord had commanded him. He was faithful. You're gonna see this over and over again. Noah did, Noah did, Noah did. James 1, and 22 says, therefore putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted which is able to save your souls. But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers only who delude themselves. Noah was a doer. You must put yourself in the story, are you? What would you have done if God spoke to you? Do you know that eminent scholars believe, and this is some speculation, that Noah may not have been the only man that God was talking to, but Noah was the one that responded to God. That's speculation, but it is interesting because God is not willing that any, what, perish, but that all come to repentance, and Noah did. By this we know that we love the children of God, 1 John 5, 2 and 3, when we love God and observe his commandments. This is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. If you love somebody, you're going to back it up with your actions. That's simply what the Bible says. You're saved by grace, but your life will reflect that relationship. Someone that you love, you want to please them. You want to bless them. We have a lot of people who can say words, but words are cheap. Actions are really what show what love is. And Noah was, man, he was old. He was 600 years old. When the flood of water came upon the earth. He was an experienced guy. We know that uh, people lived longer in the pre-flood days when the water canopy was over the earth. It seemed to produce a greenhouse effect. Probably tropical weather was everywhere. And so lifespans were increased. You didn't have the ultraviolet rays and all of that. And Noah was 600 years when the flood of water came upon the earth. Then Noah and his sons and his wife, she's never named in the account, she's simply Mrs. Noah, and his sons' wives with him entered the ark because of the water of the flood, of clean animals and animals that are not clean and birds and everything that creeps on the ground. There went into the ark to Noah by two or pairs, male and female, as God had commanded Noah. And it came about after seven days that the water of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600 year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, the Bible does this over and over again, giving exact dates, on the same day, 
All the fountains of the great deep burst open and the floodgates of the sky were opened. When the world was made, God made the water above and the water below. And what happened when God released the flood is not just simply 40 days of rain. If it rained in Southern California for 40 days, things would be wet, we'd have some mudslides, but we wouldn't have a worldwide flood, folks. What happened was the floodgates were poured out from heaven. The water that seemed to be above creating this canopy greenhouse effect that was above the world was released on the world. That's probably why it's no longer there. And underneath there were something like geysers or uh, waters, you know, most of the world is water, and the water was released, and it was coming from torrential downpour floodgates from above, and the fountains of the deep burst open from beneath, and the flood came, and it was a cataclysm. It wasn't some light shower, I wonder if the heavy stuff's going to come down in a little while, no, no, no. It was an instantaneous boom. And it would appear from the language here that the people went about their business until that very moment when this happened. The rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights, the number 40 I mentioned to you, purification, testing, preparation. And on the very same day, notice verse 13, Noah and Shem and Ham and Japheth, the sons of Noah, and Noah's wife and three and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They didn't enter the ark seven days before. The seven days may have been to make final preparations as well, may have been to gather all the animals and to accommodate them. They got into the ark, and when they got into the ark, that's when the flood came, and the people were going about business as usual. If you lived next to Noah and you saw all these animals coming, wouldn't you start to kind of believe? Hmm. This is interesting. He's not even whistling, and they're coming. I mean, come on. Something supernatural is going on here. But they continued eating. They continued drinking. They continued setting up their wedding days like nothing was happening. And Jesus said, and the flood came and took them all away. It will be just that same way when the Son of Man is revealed. The two illustrations, write this down. This is Luke 17, verse 20, through chapter 18, verse 8. The two illustrations that Jesus gives for his second coming comparisons are Noah's flood and Sodom and Gomorrah. And Jesus says, the day that Noah went into the ark, God shut the door and the flood came. And when Lot was going out of Sodom and Gomorrah, you guys know the angels were pulling him by the hand and the fire and brimstone was coming down. Just as they were going out, the flood of judgment was coming down and it will be just that same way at the coming of the Son of Man. There are some good scholars, wonderful believers who believe that the church will be raptured before that last seven years. There are others who hold in what's called boom-boom eschatology. That's from the Italian just so you guys know. And what that would look like is that the church will go through some trouble, some persecution and tribulation, and be rescued just like Noah was rescued just before the flood, just like Lot was rescued just before the fire came down, spared the wrath of God, but not necessarily spared persecution. In fact, we just prayed on our knees last Sunday for all the millions of persecuted Christians around the world. Persecution is happening I'm sure you've noticed it's been the church's lot for two millennia. 11 of the 12 apostles were martyred for their faith in Jesus Christ. 
So any idea of a, an escape hatch from tribulation should be out of our minds because that's no guarantee. But I do hope that we go prior to the seven years. I've said that many times. We can, uh, that's an in-house debate. But the point is, this is how it happened. On the very same day, look at verse 13, that they entered the ark, then the flood came and took them all away. It would appear that rapture and wrath may happen on the same day. They and every beast after its kind, 14, and all the cattle after their kind, every creeping thing that creeps on the earth after its kind, and every bird after its kind, all sorts of birds. So they went into the ark to Noah by twos of all flesh which is, in which was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, entered as God had commanded him, and the Lord closed the door, or closed it behind him. Yahweh closed the door. I read one writer who said that he believes that maybe God was inside the ark and closed the door. I read another author who says God was outside sealing the door. But either way, God's the one who shut the door. The time and the opportunity came to a close. Call upon the Lord while he is near, the Bible says. Call while you yet have breath in your lungs. Call while you have opportunity. Now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. It's as though God were pleading through us for people to be reconciled to God. There should be a sense of urgency in our preaching, you guys. We need to pray for people. We need to present the gospel. We cannot pull them into the kingdom, but we certainly can persuade if we believe that it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God, we will plead with people to get on the ark of salvation. Do you believe that? That's what, oh, boy, that was weak. <laughs> That's what we ought to be doing. We need to get on the ark and be saved. And God shut the door. The Bible teaches us that Jesus is the door. He is the way and the truth and the life. And then this poignant moment in the text, then the flood came upon the earth for 40 days. And the water increased and lifted up the ark so that it rose above the earth. This was no smooth sailing. This had to be some heart-wrenching moments, some moments of fear as the ark began to move and it began to rise along with the waters that rose. Behold, Job 12, 14 says, he restrains the waters and they dry up and he sends them out and they inundate the earth. Job 12, 14, and it rained, and it rained 40 days and 40 nights, and the water prevailed and increased, verse 18, greatly upon the earth, and the ark floated on the surface of the water. I've got nothing in my Bible that says the ark had a steering wheel. Anybody see that anywhere? I don't see any steering device. He's just floating. He's got nowhere to go except to float. You've seen those people that have the bumper sticker, Jesus is my co-pilot. And I heard a Christian comedian say, if Jesus is in the car, let him drive. Let him drive. Somebody, he can, you can give me some input when, when I kind of feel like it, Lord. I, no, no, no. Let him drive. Noah's not steering anything. This is a divine act. He's floating by faith, baby. And that's what some of us have to do. We got to kind of sometimes go with the flow. Storms and floods come. But do we believe that God will get us to our ultimate destination? That's the question. And the waters prevailed. 
and the waters prevailed, and the hands of God were there. And the water prevailed more and more upon the earth, 19, so that all the high mountains everywhere under the heavens were covered. The water prevailed 15 cubits higher, and the mountains were covered. Notice NIV says the waters rose and covered the mountains to a depth of more than 20 feet. Does that sound like a localized flood to you? I don't think so. If it were a localized flood, all Noah had to do was pack a few suitcases and go a couple cities over. Been a lot less complicated. The Bible teaches a worldwide flood. It teaches that everything was submerged. You know that they found marine fossils at the top of the highest mountains in the world? Fossilized fish fossils on the high mountains. How did they get there? unless there was some sort of cataclysmic event that took place. And so the water prevailed, and Noah, I'm sure, was grateful now that he was a man of faith. And I'm sure his three sons and their wives were grateful that they believed dad too. They may have thought dad was a little nutty. Maybe he's taking this Jesus thing a little too far. Anybody ever feel like that in your family? But they followed him by faith into the ark, and I'm sure they were all grateful that they got on the ark And all flesh that moved on the earth perished, birds and cattle and beasts and every swarming thing that swarms upon the earth and all mankind. Of all that was on the dry land, so this excludes marine animals that may have survived fish, all in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life died. Thus he, God, blotted out every living thing that was upon the face of the land from man to animals to creeping things to birds of the sky. And they were blotted out from the earth and only Noah was left together with those that were with him in the ark. And the water prevailed upon the earth 150 days. Would you turn to 2 Peter? 2 Peter chapter three. In the back of your New Testament, 2 Peter chapter three. I was thinking about the ark and we're told that they were floating around for five months as the water prevailed. That's five 30-day periods of time, if it's a 30-day month. I wonder how long they were grateful and how long it started, uh, it took for them to start to whine about their conditions. How many of you have ever been on a boat before? Boats can be nice. You take a cruise. It's pretty cool. You go on a fishing boat. But after a while, dry land sounds pretty good to me. Can you imagine five months with animals and in-laws? That is a test of faith. Now we're coming up on Thanksgiving and all of us like the idea of gratitude, an attitude of gratitude, and we want to teach that to our children. And sometimes we get around the Thanksgiving table and we say, okay, family, we're going to do something different. Everybody's going to talk about three things that you're grateful for. And everybody at the table, come on, it's Thanksgiving, holy Joe, what are you doing? Right? Pass the potatoes. You get together at your household, there's some unbelievers in the group, you circle for prayer, right? All right, let's go, let's get it over with. What's happened to us? We're supposed to be offering a continual attitude of gratitude, the fruit of our lips giving what? Thanks to his name. But sometimes we can't even muster a thank you. And I'm sure that Noah was grateful, but I wonder about the conditions of the ark, how quickly we can forget. All they had to do is really peek outside. Everything else was gone, perished in the flood. 
Do you know as a Christian, that's why a main reason you ought to thank God is because you are on the ark, sealed by the blood of Jesus Christ. The road may get bumpy, the storm may come, the waves may batter against the boat, but you've got an anchor in the storm, brothers and sisters, who will hold you together. He won't always deliver you out of everything, but he'll be with you in the storm. Remember the disciples, they're told, go over to the other side, and Jesus says, get into the boat, and he goes up on the mountain to pray. He's above the Sea of Galilee on the mountain, and they, remember, they're experienced fishermen, but they're straining at the oars. Their water's in their face. They're being pummeled by the wind of the waves, and they had to be saying, where is he? Where is he? Sometimes we ask questions like that when the waves are rising, and we're wondering, Lord, where are you? You know, God spoke to Noah on several occasions, but in the five months that are recorded here, there's no indication that God spoke to Noah at all. You ever had that experience? You, you get saved, you feel like God's speaking to you all the time, left and right in your heart through the Bible, and all of a sudden things go quiet and you're on an ark being blown around. That can be tough. That's when we're called to walk, how? By faith and not by sight. And so they had to hold on with the animals and the in-laws and, and people come along. This is 2 Peter 3. This is verse 3. And Peter says, know this, 2 Peter 3, 3. First of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking following after their own lusts. I heard a program some years ago. Greg Laurie was on the program. Some skeptic was on there. He was telling a story about a skeptic and the guy was questioning the, the second coming of Jesus and the biblical flood and everything. And Greg, in a moment of, you could say, led by the Holy Spirit, said, you know, you're a fulfillment of prophecy. And he goes, what do you mean I'm a fulfillment of prophecy? Yeah, the Bible says, in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking. You're a fulfillment of prophecy. You didn't appreciate that very much, but anyway. They will be following what? After their own lusts. This is what drives their next saying, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? 2 Peter 3, 4. For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, when they speak like this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water through which the world at that time was destroyed being flooded with water. But the present heavens and earth by his word are being reserved for fire kept for the day of judgment, there's a day that God has selected, and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. The Lord is not slow about his promises, some count slowness, but he's patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance." But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The second coming of Jesus will be like a thief to the unbelieving world in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God on account of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning, the elements will melt with intense heat but according to his promise, we are looking for what? New heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless, and blameless. 
Just as the first coming of Jesus was prophesied and the flood was prophesied, so the second coming of Jesus has been prophesied. Over 300 prophecies that pertain to his first coming and many prophecies that talk about him coming again. You can take it to the bank. Jesus is coming. Are you in the ark? Sealed in by the blood, the atoning sacrifice of the lamb. First Peter 3, just back a few pages. Peter's talking about the sacrifice of Jesus. First Peter 3, and he says these words. For Christ also died for sins, First Peter 3, 18, once for all, the just for the unjust in order that he might bring us to God having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, 1 Peter 3.19, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who were once disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is, eight persons were brought safely through the water. And corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt, from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. I was talking to Dr. Green. He talks a lot about the Hebrew language. If you go back to Genesis, and he was telling me that the word flood, when you turn it around in a chiasmic structure or flip the word around, points to our heart, and the word flood has to do with our hearts being undone. And when the flood comes, when we give in to compromise, our hearts get undone. Is that you? You feel like you're under the flood? Some people even describe their lives sometimes as they feel like they're drowning, drowning in their own poor decisions and sin. And God gives us the escape hatch. He says, come to me and come now. Verse uh, one of chapter eight says, but God remembered Noah. Chapter eight, verse one, and all the beasts and all the cattle that were with him in the ark, and God caused a wind to pass over the earth, and the water subsided. Mark that, God remembered Noah. In Hebrew, that doesn't mean that God had a senior moment, and then he came to, like, oh yeah, Gabriel, Noah's down there. <laughs> no, that's not what was going on here. The idea of remembering is zakar in Hebrew. It has the idea of being ready to act on his behalf. The Bible teaches that God will never forget us. He knows our names. Zion said, Isaiah 49, 14, the Lord has forsaken me, the Lord has forgotten me. Can a woman forget her nursing child and have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, but I will not forget you, says the Lord. Behold, I've inscribed you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. That's Isaiah 49, 14 through 16. Sometimes in the storms of life, it feels like God has forgotten us. We've all been there before. We're on the ark. We're standing on promises. We're floating by faith. And sometimes we say, Lord, where are you? Have you forgotten about me? But the Bible teaches that the Lord will never leave you, nor will he what? Ever forsake you. He who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. But sometimes we feel forgotten. I wonder how Noah and his family felt over that period of months. You see, the ark was a work of faith, but floating was also a work of faith. Going with the flow in the storms of life and considering that God is faithful and he will bring us to the end of that destination where we're supposed to be. One writer says, after college and marriage, I found it easy to put on weight and get out of shape. 
A year ago, I became committed to working hard to take the sag out of my sagging waistline. Day after day, I worked hard on cardiovascular exercise and weight training, seeming to get nowhere, straining, sweating, and sucking wind, questioning my sanity. But then after several months, it was as though a quantum leap occurred. Weight began to drop off, muscle began to get toned, and endurance increased significantly. Medical friends tell me that during the constancy of working out, regardless of how I felt, a whole new freeway system of small blood vessels and capillaries was forming within my body. Then came the day when they decided it was time for a grand opening. Suddenly, more blood came flooding into the muscle tissue, and the resultant benefit seemed to be exponential. Likewise, when we're walking through the depths of trials, God is building up a secondary support system of endurance that we might be even more prepared for the next time adversity comes our way. I'm sure there were many moments in the ark where Noah said, Lord, when is this going to end? When will the waters recede in my life? When will I be able to move forward? Will I be able to move forward? And God remembered Noah. God is faithful to remember us. He, in, in fact, has us inscribed on the palms of his hands. And a wind blew. Uh, wind is ruach in Hebrew. It can be associated with the power of the Holy Spirit. And it passed over the earth, and God was moving, and God was working. Could be the work of the Holy Spirit here. There's a decreation and then a recreation, if you will, of the world. And the Bible says when God parted the Red Sea, he parted it with just a blast, one of the best pictures in Scripture, of his nostrils, just like a baseball player. And And this is what God does. He is king over the flood, and he dominates the floodwaters. Turn to Psalm 104 for a second. Psalm 104. I want to show you this wonderful psalm. Psalm 104 tells us what happened when the floodwaters were going to go away. Psalm 104. Look at verse 6. It says, Thou, God, didst cover it with the deep as with a garment, The waters, Psalm 104, verse 6, were standing above the mountains. At thy rebuke, they fled. At the sound of thy thunder, they hurried away. The mountains rose. The valleys sank down to the place which thou did establish for them. Thou did set a boundary that they may not pass over, that they may not return to cover the earth. The Lord rebuked the waters, just like back to Genesis, if you would. Jesus rebuked the wind and the waves when he came walking to them on the sea in Matthew 14 and Mark 6. And the disciples says, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? Can you imagine having that power? Shh. And the wind and the waves, okay, the creator just said to be quiet. Jesus' power over demons, over natural uh, processes of the earth, over death itself, prove that he is God. Over disease, he's God. God moved among us in the person of Jesus Christ. In our very history in which we live, he left his mark on the world. And God caused this wind to sweep across And he can do that in your life. When the floods come, he can sweep out all the garbage and remove the floodwaters. 
And also the fountains of the deep, 8-2 Genesis, and the floodgates of the sky were closed. All divine operation. The rain was no accident. It wasn't some earthly phenomenon. It wasn't Mother Nature. It was the Father Creator. And he closed the floodgates. And the rain from the sky was restrained, and the water receded steadily from the earth. And at the end of the 150 days, the water decreased. I have found in my life, maybe you guys can relate to this, that some things in my life as a Christian, when I'm going through floods, God just closes off. He'll stop floodgates. He'll close off the fountains of the deep. But sometimes waters in my life recede slowly and steadily. You know what I'm saying? It doesn't always happen overnight as a Christian. It didn't for Noah. Noah would have liked everything to go away, but the water had to sink down and recede slowly. And that's how faith is. The Lord moved the the people groups in Canaan out little by little. God does some things immediately and some things happen over time. Some floodwaters recede out of your life slowly. And healing comes. And that's how God is. And in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the monk, Monk, month. <laughs> the ark rested upon the mountains of Ararat. If you're interested, Google Ron Wyatt, W Y A T T, Ron Wyatt. He's a, he was an archaeologist, died in 1999. He went up to the mountains of Ararat, it's plural, not Mount Ararat, but the mountain range. And at 17,000 feet is the top of the peak. And there's a structure up there, an outline that looks very much like an ark. You can see it if you just go on the internet. It's debated, is it really the ark? It has biblical dimensions to it, and it is extremely intriguing. It's up in a place where it snows almost continuously, and the government of that region put a visitor center there, and they believe it's Noah's ark, maybe for financial reasons. But it is interesting to look at. Ron Wyatt... And just Google Noah's Ark and you'll see it up there. And so here's what happens. The the Ark came to rest. It came to rest on the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month. That's pretty specific. You know, if you take the civil calendar, which was switched to the religious calendar at the Exodus, the date here is the date of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He died on Nisan 14 and rose most likely on the 17th day. I'm not going to push this too far, but that date is very intriguing. You might want to do a little bit more homework on it. It may be the date that Jesus Christ sat, rose from the dead and, if you will, sat down, rested at the right hand of God the Father. And so here is Vatana, a play on Noah's name, the ark rested, and there's going to be a time in the floods of life where you can rest. Amen? Sometimes it seems like it's never going to come. But Jesus says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you what? I will give you rest. And the water decreased steadily until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains became visible. 73 days later, the tops of the mountains became visible. Uh, I remember coming back from a mission trip from Nepal and India, and it was 24 hours one way on a plane. The last stretch of the flight was 10 hours. I was screaming inside to get off that plane. 
We landed at LAX and the pilot came on and said, they're having a little trouble at the gate and it's probably gonna be another 45 minutes to one hour until we can disembark this plane. And people were just going, no! Can you imagine that extra time if it were you? I mean, you had to be screaming inside, I wanna get off this thing, Lord. And 73 more days go. But in fact, the total time they were on the ark, when you take all the calculations, was 371 days. That's over a year on the ark with in-laws and animals. You're either a better person or you were insane when you got off the ark. Then it came about. The New King James says, it came to pass. You know, things in life will come to pass. It's a great statement, isn't it? Some things that seemed so overwhelming five years ago, they came to pass. Sometimes in life we feel like, is this ever gonna end this season? And in many cases, it comes to pass. And things we struggled with five years ago, we don't even remember what they were. Some of you are struggling with some things that you're never gonna forget, but they can still come to pass in the floods of life. And Noah opened the window of the ark, which he had made, and he sent out a raven, an unclean bird that will eat flesh, and it flew here and there until the water was dried up from the earth. Then he sent out a dove, a clean bird, from him to see if the water was abated from the face of the land. Just a quick lesson here. Why doesn't God just tell Noah what to do? Why does he have to use birds? Because in life, God will speak to us sometimes, and there's other times when he's just gonna ask you to act, to use your gifts and your calling and, and do things and be active. And so Noah sent out the raven to see what was going on. He sent out the dove to see if the waters had abated from the face of the land. But the dove found no resting place for the sole of her foot. So she returned to him into the ark, for the water was on the surface of all the earth. Then he put out his hand and he took her and brought her into the ark to himself. The dove is a work of the spirit. When Jesus was baptized, the Holy Spirit came down on him in the form of what? A dove, and it lighted upon him. And the work of the spirit, it was happening in Jesus' life, and the heavens opened, and the Father said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. What we want is the spirit to light on us, amen? We have the spirit of God in us, but the Bible says, be ye kept being filled with the spirit. Extend your hands out and say, Lord, fill them, amen? When I come into worship, that's my prayer. Lord, sometimes my hands feel empty in the floods and just the everyday stuff of life. Fill me again. Let the dove, let the spirit light on me and land on me. The Lord is so faithful. So he waited yet another seven days, and again he sent out the dove from the ark. And the dove came to him toward evening, and behold, in her beak was a freshly picked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the water was abated from the earth. Then he waited, verse 10 he waited, verse 12 he waited yet another seven days, the day, the number of perfection or completion. And he sent out the dove, but she did not return to him again. The word wait in the Hebrew picture language means to draw near to Yeshua. Sometimes you gotta wait. In the floods of life, sometimes you have to act and sometimes you have to wait. You may be thinking about doing something silly or destructive right now. May I tell you, wait. Get before the Lord. Get before your Bible. 
Don't listen to the talk shows of the world as to what you should do to navigate the flood that you're in right now. Wait. Wait another seven days. See how the Lord might speak to you. No, I had to have everything inside him screaming to get off the ark. But what did he do? He waited. And in waiting, the Hebrew word, he drew, he drew, drew near to Yeshua, to Messiah. That's what we should do when we're waiting. Draw near to God and he will do what? He will draw near to you. And so he waited. And it came about in the 601st year, in the first month, on the first of the month, the water was dried up from the earth. Then Noah removed the covering of the ark. That's interesting. There was some sort of cover. And looked, and behold, the surface of the ground was dried up. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth was dry. Then God spoke to Noah and said, go out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Do you think some people were afraid to get off? They become so used to their conditions. You know, we need to come, but the Lord also tells us to go. Go into all the world and do what? And make disciples. And sometimes you gotta, you gotta get off the places that you're used to and take a step of faith and step out like Peter did out of the boat. Amen? Don't always play it safe. God's a big God. If Peter wouldn't have stepped out, he wouldn't have walked on the water. Makes sense. If you don't take a step of faith, you're not gonna walk on top of anything that's supernatural. And so go out of the ark, bring out with you every living thing all of all the flesh that is with you, birds, animals, every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. This must have been quite a parade of animals that they may breed abundantly on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out, and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with them, every beast, every creeping thing, every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by their families or species from the ark. And then Noah built an altar to the Lord. When the flood is over, may I encourage you, worship. This is the first mention of an altar in the Bible. And when God ends the flood and he, the waters go away, don't just move on. Don't just say, hey, God, I'll see you next emergency. Don't do that. Worship. Our lives are to be living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to him. And he worshiped and he took notice of every clean animal and every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar and the Lord smelled the soothing aroma. This is a play on Noah's name. Nahoah is the Hebrew word. It was a soothing rest to God, if you will. And the Lord said in his heart or to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man. For the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. We'll see more about this in chapter 9. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest and cold and heat and summer and winter and day and night shall not cease. Human nature has not changed. Even though the flood washed all the evil away, our problem is where? In our hearts. Our hearts are deceitfully wicked above all things. Who can understand them? And Hollywood says, follow your heart. Just, it, it, you'll never go wrong if you follow your heart. Oh, 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 let me tell you something. Oh, yeah, you can. Your heart can be deceptive. The best thing to do is don't follow your heart. Follow God. Make him Lord in your heart. Set him apart as Lord, and he will take you where you need to be. I'll close with this story. I have a friend 
who was uh, a missionary and he's a pastor down in Temecula. And uh, after 9-11 happened, nobody wanted to fly. And uh, I asked my friend, are you gonna get on a plane with all the planes being grounded and all that's happened with airplanes? And he said, yeah, I'm flying, I'm going on this mission trip. It'll probably be the safest flight I've ever had. And I said, well, what if something happens? And what if, the, what if somebody blows up the plane? And my friend said, then I'll be a burnt offering to the Lord. <laughs> I thought, wow. Apparently, there's still some Noahs around today. And the question that we all need to ask is, who do we want to be? Father, thank you so much for your word. It's a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And we know that the story of Noah is true. Noah was a real man. I believe he's in heaven today. One day we will talk with him. One day we may see video of the flood and how he dealt with it. But each one of us, Lord, face our own floods. The thing that we need to do as people, it's clear here, is run to the ark of salvation. And I thank you that so many in this room have done just that. They've run to Jesus while there was yet time to avoid the flood of judgment. Thank you for that, Lord. Thank you that you've made a way. You didn't have to. You could have just had us perish along with everybody else, but you've made a way. You've invited us to commune with you and to end up at the destination that you want to take us, which is heaven and ultimately new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells and sometimes out of the flood, new ministry comes. Times of multiplication and growth pictured in the olive branch. New growth, new perspective. There may be some here that they're in the midst of a flood and I pray, Lord, that you'll see them through. There may be people here who don't know you yet. They have not entered the ark. And I pray that they would do so. They would see their need for the Savior, Jesus Christ, that all of our hearts are corrupt from our youth. We've all sinned. We all fall short of your glory, but you've made a way. You are the way, the truth, and the life with your head and heart bowed. If you've not met Jesus Christ, run into the ark and be saved. He is the way. He died and experience the shame of the cross that you might live. He shed his blood that you might be cleansed of your sin, that your sins might be blotted out. If you want to ask him into your life, it's something very simple but very profound. You'll never be the same again if you open up your heart. And it's something like this. And I would just encourage you, pray it out loud if it's you. Jesus, come into my life. Thank you that you died on the cross for my salvation. I repent of my sin, and I receive you as my Lord and my Savior. Thank you that you rose from the dead to defeat the great enemy of death. Thank you that you've made a way. I turn away from my sin, and I turn to you. Seal me into the ark. Help me to know you all the days of my life. You might be a prodigal and Maybe you've just been, you kind of created a flood and you need to get back in that place of safety. Uh, the door is open. So take advantage of that open door and run to him. And Lord, for the rest of the precious saints, may you just wash over us with your strength, your healing waters, your power, the dove of your Holy Spirit filling us afresh. Help us to forsake the ways of the flesh and 
walk in the spirit. We love you, we worship you, and we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.